This morning, we are commencing a new series entitled, Thy Kingdom Come. And those words, Thy Kingdom Come, are taken from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. And um, it's from a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. (coughs) And people of my age and older will remember saying this in school. Um, Because there was a time, you know, we used to say this daily in school. In my particular junior school, it was at the end of the day, and uh, we had to stand behind our desks and put our chairs on the desks, because that's what you had to do do in those days. You don't do that anymore, do you? To make it easier for the cleaner. And then we would say the Lord's Prayer in good old King James, uh, 17th century English. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the words thy kingdom come, I'm sure, are familiar to many of us. But my guess is that there are many people who say those words or pray those words, whether it be in churches or in their own private devotional times, who don't always know what they mean. And they don't always know what they're, what they're praying for as they recite those words. And over the next uh, few weeks, we are going to be focusing on these, uh, on the, on these uh, words and attempt to discover why these words are so important and why Jesus spoke, spoke so much about the kingdom, God's kingdom, and why were his words so provocative and inflammatory in the first century Israel, and why is this teaching so important for us as Christians in the 21st century? And the words of Jesus about the kingdom are both radical and revolutionary and central to everything that Jesus taught. And I would go as far as to say that if we don't understand Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, then we really don't understand Jesus. We don't understand the gospel. We don't understand the New Testament. They are that central. This morning, and um, you always find this at the first talk at the start of a series, And I always find it both exciting because, you know, we're starting a new journey together for the next number of weeks. But it's also a little bit frustrating because there's so much to say and I just want to dive in at the deep end and we can't do that. So this morning, I think that probably we will just have not much more than an introduction to the whole theme. (coughs) Next week, we're going to probably dig a little bit deeper into the Jewishness of Jesus and what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God meant to first century Jews. And I think you'll find that quite fascinating. And what was going on in the world in that day? You know, when we were children, most of us probably saw Jesus as nice, quiet, gentle. Uh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, we used to say, didn't we? On whose lap children just loved to sit a guy who was often pictured with a sheep being tenderly cared for in his arms. And as adults, our views of Jesus might have changed a little bit. And perhaps now we have a more grown-up view of Jesus, a more mature view. And we see Jesus as one whose job was to die so that our sins should be forgiven and that we would one day go to heaven. And I think it's wonderful to have our sins forgiven. It's wonderful to know that assurance that one day we will part from this world and we will be with Jesus, with God for eternity. 
But I do get this nagging in my heart that the Jesus written about in the four Gospels doesn't always comfortably fit with the, uh, the Jesus of contemporary 21st century Western Christianity. Now, I uh, have studied the, the Christian faith, I've studied the Gospels for the best part of four decades. And even though I have studied probably long and hard, I don't feel that I've even scratched the surface on the person of Jesus. And I am both satisfied and unsatisfied with Jesus. Satisfied in the sense that uh, Jesus has turned my life around in ways that I could never have imagined. But he is my saviour and my lord. But he is my mentor, my guide, my friend. But unsatisfied because I believe that there are still depths to plummet in Jesus and his message. And Jesus and his messages are undoubtedly far better than anything that I've heard or understood or figured out so far. Jesus continues to intrigue me, fascinate me, enthrall me. Jesus continues to captivate my thinking, he really does. And I believe that there are many more layers to Jesus than I have yet discovered. And my prayer is, for myself, and my prayer is for all of us over the next few weeks, that Jesus will become far more real to us as we study together that which was central in his teaching. And that we will see Jesus in a new light and that the scriptures that we perhaps didn't previously understand, we will understand. And it will all become plainer to us. In the late 1990s, I read a book. It was revolutionary to me. It transformed me. And that book, many of you have read it. Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace. And I remember reading that book. Wow, this is incredible. And I just kept seeing grace everywhere. Not, every t- not only when I read the scriptures, but in everyday life. I just Grace was everywhere. And my prayer is that after several weeks of us studying together, this central message of the kingdom of God, central to Jesus, that we will feel very much the same way. That we will see kingdom everywhere. That's my prayer. Okay. Jesus on one occasion asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And the disciples answered, some say that you are John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus then said to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter was the one who (coughs) offered an answer as, Peter always did. And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus commended him, saying that that had been revealed to him by his father. Brian McLaren, um, author, pastor, theologian, he writes in this book, and um, both Dan and I will be using this from time to time in our series. It's a quite brilliant book, The Secret Message of Jesus. And... um, you can get that for uh, just a couple of quid on Amazon secondhand. I buy all my books secondhand. Why, why buy, you know, the silly prices? Put the... It's a great book. And uh, I'm going to give you a couple of quotes from what uh, Brian says. <coughs> Put them on screen for you as well. He says, what if we have carried on a religion that faithfully celebrates Jesus in ritual and art, teaches about Jesus in sermons and books, sings about Jesus in songs and hymns, 
and theorizes about Jesus in seminaries and classrooms, but somewhere along the way, missed the rich and radical treasures hidden in the essential message of Jesus. Hmm. I sometimes, as I read the scriptures, feel, Lord, that might be me. I don't know if you ever feel like that. He goes on to say, But through these years, an uncomfortable feeling has showed me that the portrait of Jesus I found in the New Testament doesn't fit with the image of Christianity projected by religious institutions, charismatic televangelists, religious spokespeople in the media, and sometimes my own preaching. Sometimes the discomfort has come when I realize that Jesus' teachings on example don't fit neatly into my categories of theology. I think that's an incredible, incredibly honest statement there by uh, Brian McLaren. I'm sure most of us have uh, computers, laptops. My laptop is a, is a brilliant uh, machine. It can do all kinds of tasks. But most of the time, I only use my laptop for three things. I use it for doing internet searches. I, do it for, I use it for emails, and I also use it for word processing. Sometimes, over and above those three things, I will use it for uh, PowerPoint slides. I will use it for a little bit of desktop publishing. But if my laptop was a person, I think my laptop would feel frustrated and greatly undervalued for not being used anywhere near its potential. And on times, I just wonder if the Gospels feel very much the same way. That they feel frustrated as their full potential remains unrealized. The information they provide for us on who Jesus is, I believe, far larger, more awesome, more wonderful, more dazzling, more disturbing than most Christians have ever imagined. And I've spoken to many Christians over the years who seem to have reduced Jesus to a personal saviour, to one who will get us one day into heaven, to a friend who will bring us comfort in the hard times, a personal God who hears our prayers and answers from heaven and one day will get us into heaven. Now, don't get me wrong here. Jesus is a friend. He is a counsellor, a comforter. He is one who intercedes to the Father on our behalf. He is the saviour of the world who has forgiven our sins. And one day he will call us to be with him in eternity. And I thank God for all of those truths. But I do believe that the message of the Gospels is far more expansive than just a ticket to heaven. Far more interesting than just a religious leader who essentially is concerned with our personal piety and far more wonderful than most Christians ever proclaim. And I believe the key to understanding Jesus better than we do is to understand what Jesus said about the kingdom of God. So this morning, I'm not attempting too much this morning, what I am wanting us to do is just to familiarize ourselves with the way that Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God. And it might surprise you, actually, in the way that he does this. 
In Matthew's Gospel, for example, the kingdom is mentioned 55 times. In Mark's Gospel, 20 times. Mark's Gospel is much smaller than Matthew. Luke's Gospel, 46 times. And in John's Gospel, just five times. But there's a reason for that, which I'll tell you in a moment. So, start at the beginning. In Matthew's Gospel, and most of us... uh, on a new year, we have this New Year's resolution. We start reading our Bibles again. And many of us will sort of delve into the uh, pages of Matthew. <coughs> and I do encourage you, as we are studying this together, please coincide your own personal study times uh, in Scripture reading and work your way through Matthew's Gospel and keep an eye out for the many times that the word kingdom is mentioned. As we know, Matthew's Gospel starts with the birth narratives of Jesus. And then shortly after the birth narratives of Jesus, we are introduced to a cousin of Jesus, Elizabeth and Zechariah's son. His name was John. And John was also called the Baptist or the Baptizer. And he was a bit of a wild man, a prophet, someone that lived out in the wilderness, someone who wore uh, camel's hair garments and ate wild locusts. Isaiah prophesied about this man hundreds of years before. Now, in ancient times, you know, ancient civilizations didn't have email, didn't have mobile phones, and they didn't have uh, social media. And if an important person was going to enter a town or a city, another person, a forerunner, would go into that city before the important person would get there. And John was this forerunner of Jesus and John's message was this (coughs) repent for the kingdom of heaven is near that was his message at the first century Jewish people the message of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was hugely hugely important and we're going to look at that next week in the following chapter We read that Jesus was baptized by John. Jesus was taken into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And then we read in chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. What did he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And we keep hearing this message about the kingdom of heaven. A few verses further on in verse 23. Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then we come into that great few chapters. Uh, Chapter 5 of Matthew through to chapter 7 is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Probably one of the most well-known passages and least understood passages in the entire New Testament. And you all know about the Beatitudes, those sayings, blessed. Start with the word blessed. It's no surprise to me that they start off and they finish off with with, um, Beatitudes about the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, was the first one. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And they're like bookends. And then there are six other Blessed sayings, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, and so forth. And then we come to the last one, 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are many other mentions of the kingdom of heaven in these three chapters and throughout Matthew's gospel. When we come to chapter 13, (coughs) this is a, a, a chapter where there are seven parables which are given to us in quick succession. And um, Jesus uh, told his disciples about a farmer planting seeds. And he says there in verse 19, the seed that fell on the footpath, and we all know this parable, don't we, represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Again, hear the message about what? It's about the kingdom. And I just wonder, you know, as I read that verse this week, might we be included in that number? That we hear the message of the kingdom through reading our New Testaments, but maybe we don't understand it. Maybe we've never noticed how much Jesus has to say about this one subject, which is absolutely central to what Jesus taught. In verse 24, another uh, parable The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. Verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in the field. Verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in in making bread. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. Verse 45, again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. Verse 47, again the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. Now again, it may be that you've read all of those parables but never really associated what they were about, that they're about the kingdom. The parables, 2,000 years on, they still cause us an awful lot of debate and discussion. They really do. And I'll come back to the parables in a couple of weeks' time um, and ask the question, not only why did Jesus speak in parables, but why on earth couldn't Jesus make his teaching plainer than it is? I don't know if about you, but you know, I, I sometimes have to scratch my head thinking, what did he mean? What's he talking about? I have absolutely no idea here. And it causes me to think through yet again and perhaps talk with others. What could Jesus have meant there? Why was everything so complicated to understand? Why was it all so confusing? Why, why did Jesus speak in metaphors and stories? Why didn't he speak plainly and straightforwardly? Have you ever felt like that? Or was it just me? Yeah, a few of you are smiling and nodding. But what is the kingdom of heaven? You see, many people see that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, and straight away they think that it means heaven. You know, the old hymns that we used to sing years ago, in the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Wonderful metaphors of, you know, sort of, uh, of heaven itself. The place that we will go when this life is over, as many people believe. But I don't believe that that's what Jesus is referring to here in the term the kingdom of heaven. He's not speaking of the afterlife. 
it probably includes the heavenly kingdom. But what Jesus was speaking about was far bigger and far more extensive to what happens to us when this life is over. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is all about. The phrase kingdom of heaven is found mainly in Matthew's gospel. Mark and Luke use something else. They don't use kingdom of heaven. They use the phrase kingdom of God. And the reason for that is that Matthew, unlike Mark and Luke, Matthew was writing to Jews. And <coughs> they were his audience. And Jews of that era would not pronounce the name of God. Because they believed that the name of God was far too holy for anybody to ever speak about it. So, Matthew, he doesn't want to offend the Jews that he is writing to. He just uses this other term, a synonym. He uses the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> but what is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? We'll come back to that in a moment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all speak of kingdom. But that phrase is hardly ever used in John's Gospel. It's only used on five occasions. And the reason for that is that John uses another phrase in his Gospel. It's a phrase which is translated in our English Bibles by the words eternal life or sometimes abundant life or life to the full or life. And just like the phrase kingdom of heaven, the words eternal life are often misinterpreted to mean life in heaven when you die. And the Greek word here for eternal, the word aeonios, not only refers to the duration of our lives, that our lives are everlasting, that they are without end, but also refers, and I know this is hard to catch, also refers to the caliber or the stature or the richness of our lives on earth. The quality of them. So when you see those words eternal life, don't think, oh, you know, sort of sitting on a cloud, perhaps, with a harp. Okay? What Jesus is speaking about here is the very quality of our lives, the abundant life that we have here. A life which is radically different from the kind of life that other people are living. A life which is overflowing. A higher life. A life which isn't just existence, but an extraordinary life based on our relationship with God. You see, Jesus himself provides a definition of eternal life in John chapter 17 and uh, verse 3. And this is what Jesus said. Now this is eternal life, that when thou shalt die and get to heaven, thou shalt ever play a harp and sit on a fluffy white cloud. No, I don't think so. What Jesus actually said was this. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. <coughs> You see, Jesus himself speaks about eternal life as knowing God, knowing God. It's about this interactive relationship. It's about a journey together. A journey that will ultimately result in our glory. So what is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? The simplest definition I can give. And this in no way does, ju does justice 
to what the New Testament teaches is that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign. Jesus taught his disciples to say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, God's will is always done on earth, in, in heaven. God's will is never disobeyed. God's will in heaven is absolute. So when we are praying that prayer, from the Lord's prayer, when we are praying that, we are praying that God's power and God's authority and God's mercy and God's grace and God's compassion and God's justice might be found on earth just in the same way as it's found in heaven. You see, the kingdom of God was inaugurated, it was launched by Jesus. That's why John the Baptist preached, the kingdom of heaven is near. Every time someone was healed, a little bit more of God's kingdom came. When Jesus cast out demons, Luke 11.20 tells us that the kingdom of God has come to you. Every occasion when someone reaches out with mercy and compassion to someone else, the kingdom of God becomes a little bit more evident. Every time a sinner bows the knee, in submission to God's authority, God's kingdom is extended. And again, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's just introductory words today. I'm not going to get further than that. When we read of the kingdom of God, we need to see it as in two ways. We need to see it as a present reality. It's here. It's now. It's immediate. It's near. But it's partial now. It's not in its fulfillment, it's not in its fullness, but also the kingdom of heaven is future. And one day, the Bible teaches us that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. That Christ will come to bring justice for those who have suffered injustice. There's coming a day when God is going to balance the scales. And then God's rule will be complete, where there will be new heavens and a new earth where the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. Isaiah, in chapter 11, he gives us a lovely illustration of this. Let me put the words up on screen. He says, In that day the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child would put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. Now, obviously, that's not going to be, uh, I don't believe, a literal thing. We shouldn't take that literally. But my word, what a wonderful picture that is, isn't it? What a wonderful metaphor of giving us an indication of what God's future kingdom will be like. It's a wonderful picture of the fulfillment of God's kingdom. That in this kingdom will reign peace and justice. But until that time, we are to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are to make Jesus 
and God's kingdom our priority because Jesus told his disciples to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The word righteousness is the Greek word, is exactly the same for justice. We have two very, very different words meaning different things in the English language, but the Greek was just one word for all of that. And we live in a very unjust world, a world full of greed and poverty. It's a world of murder and mayhem, a world of hatred and strife, of injustice and inequality. But in this world, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we have been called to seek first his kingdom and its justice, to be secret agents of the kingdom, to be agents of change and to be agents of God's blessing to others. You see, for centuries, I believe that Christians have uh, downplayed, they've misunderstood or even forgotten about this message that we are speaking of this morning, of Jesus and his kingdom. And instead of the focus down through the centuries of Jesus and his kingdom being central in the Christian religion, it seems to me that many Christians, and many Christians today, seem to be fixated on abandoning or escaping earth and going to heaven. That's the main thing for them. And it might surprise you that Jesus didn't speak much of that at all. But nearly everything that he spoke about was the kingdom of heaven on earth. You know, I know that most Christians believe in life after death. I do, and I thank God for that. But do we really believe in life before death? Because Jesus really spoke considerably more about that than he did about the next life. Messages for us today, I suppose, we don't uh, just wait around and sit around and, you know, just wait for the time when we will meet Jesus. But we are called as people to seek first his kingdom and to give our lives to his kingdom and kingdom purposes with passion. There's a great song that we sometimes sing here. We're not singing it this morning, but we will be singing it over the next few weeks. It's by uh, Ren Collective, Build Your Kingdom Here. We seek your kingdom first, we hunger and we thirst. Refuse to waste our lives for your our joy and prize. To see the captive hearts released, the hurt, the sick, the poor at peace. We lay down our lives for heaven's cause. We are your church. We pray revive this earth. Every time I speak at the front of this church, or Dan, I can speak for Dan as well, we do try to provide specific, specific application. The last thing that we want to do is to fill your heads full of knowledge with stuff. Because obviously the really, really important thing is of a Sunday morning is how our lives might be changed throughout the week. It's not just a matter of you know, sort of having knowledge to puff us up. And God, I believe, is far more concerned about transformation than having our minds full of information. And having said that, I'm very conscious this morning that um, the focus really has been on information and not so much on practical application. And I'm just going to ask you just to bear with us for a few weeks because I believe the more that we will learn about the message of Jesus, which was central to him, the more that we will learn about the, the kingdom of heaven, 
the more that we will understand Jesus, the more we will fall in love with him, the more the New Testament will make sense to us when we read it, and the more we will be about his kingdom business. So bear with us for the next few weeks. And as I say, a challenge. Start reading Matthew's Gospel this week. Have a notebook. Uh, Just keep an eye out for all the ways that he is uh, speaking uh, of kingdom in that gospel. Amen.